Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from The 27th, A Regimental History, published in 1866 and written by Winthrop D. Sheldon. This book looks at the campaign of the 27th Regiment Connecticut Volunteers, which began in the most critical and anxious period of the war against the rebellion. The year was 1862. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and I hope I'm helping to help play a little part in helping you get it. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. The podcast is completely free, and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. Special thank you to all listeners who left me a review or message during the week. Thank you now board TYG for your review on iTunes and your continued support. Nicole for your message via the website. I'm glad I've helped with your insomnia. And at this is Kate L and at MSGT Witch for your tweets on Twitter. It was awesome to hear from you. If the podcast helps, please subscribe and leave it a review. It really does help out and doesn't really take that long. You can also say hello at boreyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. The 27th A Regimental History by Winthrop D. Sheldon Chapter 1 Camp near Washington The campaign of the 27th Regiment Connecticut Volunteers began in the most critical and anxious period of the war against the rebellion, the year 1862. After long months of diligent preparation, the army of the Potomac opened the year with its first memorable advance against the rebel capital. The inspiring faith of all loyal hearts followed every step of its progress up to the peninsula, toward the stronghold of treason, and when the shattered but undaunted remnants retreated down the James River and hurried to the defence of the national capital, menaced by an exultant foe, Deep was the disappointment which filled the whole north. Every year was strained to catch the result of the conflict before Washington. 
only to hear that the rebels had been partially successful and were crossing the Potomac into Maryland and Pennsylvania. Those were days of profound anxiety, but not of weak irresolution. Each new disaster seemed to bring the people nearer to a realisation of the magnitude of the struggle and nerve them to fulfil the imperative duties of the hour. The President early in July issued the proclamation calling for 300,000 men to serve for three years and on the 4th of August, following summoned to the field, 300,000 more to serve for nine months. The 27th Regiment was organised under this latter call. Its members were recruited from New Haven County and mainly from the city of New Haven, with considerable numbers from Madison, Milford, Meriden, Wallingford, Branford, Clinton and Guildford, and still smaller quotas from the other neighbouring towns. The character and material of the regiment well illustrated the hardiness with which all classes responded to the earnest call of the President in those dark days of the Republic. Every variety of condition and employment found representatives in the 27th. The agricultural population of the county responded with a goodly number of the votaries of Serres. Many of the most respected and enterprising mechanics and businessmen of the community laid aside for a season the implements of their labour to join its ranks. Members of the press exchanged pen and type for sword and bayonet. There were also several accomplished engineers in the regiment, one of whom was detailed in that department on the staff of General W.S. Hancock and had charge of the General's topographical maps and plans of battles. The public schools of the city contributed one of their most esteemed teachers, who gave his life on the field of Fredericksburg, and in the room where of yore he so successfully led on his pupils, from step to step in knowledge, hangs his portrait to them a daily recurring lesson of noble patriotism and self-devotion. Also the various professions furnished of their members, and old Yale, never faithless to the patriotic instincts of her revolutionary sons, was represented by several of her graduates and students, one of whom was a colour-bearer of the regiment at Fredericksburg, Chancellorville and Gettysburg. The first company went into camp at Camp Terry, New Haven, 
in the latter part of August and by the middle of September, the whole number of companies were on the ground, with nearly a full quota of men. Being technically a militia regiment, the choice of field officers was vested in those of the line. Richard S. Bostwick of New Haven was elected colonel, Henry C. Merwin of the same place, Lieutenant Colonel and Theodore Bixby of Meriden Major, all of whom with a number of the company officers had been connected with the three-month volunteers at the beginning of the war. After several weeks spent in perfecting the organisation and equipment, the regiment was mustered into the United States Service October 22, 1862 for the term of nine months and started for the field in the evening of that day, numbering 829 rank and file. Without stopping to dwell upon the passage to New York, to Port Monmouth or upon the generous hospitality of the Quaker City and passing by the night journey to Baltimore, succeeded by a day's rest of the pavements of that city, the morning of the 25th found us in Washington. Camp Seward on Arlington Heights is soon reached and quickly long rows of tents rear their white roofs in General Lee's peach orchard. Possibly in other days we should have some summarily ejected by a grand charge of that gentleman's dusky retainers, or perhaps indicted in the courts for presuming to trespass upon the domain of an FFV, and have paid dearly to appease his injured feelings. But now the crowd of slaves is dispersed, and Massa Lee is not there to dispute our right to possession. Our introduction to Old Dominion would be incomplete unless the foreground of the picture presented to view that bugbear Virginia mud which has made and unmade so many generals and stopped the wheels of the army of the Potomac with periodical regularity. We had hardly arrived at Camp Seward when the clouds began to marshal their forces for an illustration of their power to change the sacred soil into a sea of mud and as if to show the minutiae of the forming process, it began to drizzle slowly. The mist gradually enlarged into drops, and the soil grew softer and softer. As we floundered about, we began to realise that the aforesaid mud was not altogether a myth, conjured up by inefficient commanders to excuse inaction. The storm continued at intervals during the 26th, 
and as night approached, a strong wind, superadded to the pelting rain, swept howling over the ridge, tearing many of our tents from their uncertain moorings. All, however, were disposed to view philosophically that this somewhat unceremonious welcome to the soil of Virginia and the hardships of a soldier's life. At noon of the 27th, the order came to strike tents, preparatory to moving our camp a few miles up the Potomac. Late in the day, the march began, crossing over into Georgetown by the Aqueduct Bridge, and following the picturesque course of the river up to Chainbridge, we returned to the left bank and bivac for the rest of the night around huge fires. The next morning, Camp Tuttle assumes a veritable existence, and here the 27th settled down to a month's routine and drill preliminary to the rough experience of an actual campaign. Our camp was situated upon a rising ground from which could be seen the majestic dome of the capital. Some distance in front of the parade and on the left were thick woods, while the right was skirted by a road across which were encamped the 24th and 28th New Jersey and the 127th Pennsylvania, which, with our own regiment, constituted a brigade of Abercrombie's Division of the Army for the defence of Washington. As soon as the camp was established in its new location, the colonel issued a regimental order setting forth the program of daily duty as follows. Reveal at 6am, guard mounting at 8, company drill from 9 to 11, and again from 1 to 2, battalion drill from 3 to 4, and dress parade at 5 p.m., tattoo at 9, taps at half past 9. All this was varied by an occasional season of picket duty, a few miles up the Leesburg Turnpike. Our first Sabbath at Camp Tuttle forms, in most respects, a sample of all the rest. Sunday is to the soldier the most anomalous day of the calendar, especially if situated as we were without a chaplain. The weekly inspection and freedom from drill are the chief points which distinguish it from other days. In the present instance, however, an unexpected cause of excitement appeared. 
After dress parade, it was announced that in consequence of certain rumoured movements of the enemy in the direction of Leesburg, it might be necessary to beat the long roll to call the regiment under arms at any moment during the night. Of course, the very thought of a rebel added new zest to our military existence. Everyone was on QV and made his arrangements to respond to the call with the utmost promptness. But the apprehended raid did not take place, and our rest was therefore undisturbed by the soul-stirring notes of the long roll. Every few days a company was detailed to go on picket, an event not altogether unwelcome as a relief to the monotonous round of camp duties and as an introduction to a new phase of experience. To obtain some idea of this portion of our regimental life around Washington, let us fall in, fully armed and equipped, and follow one of these parties on the picket line. On the present occasion, Company H, with detachments from other regiments, started out one morning and, after marching several miles on the Leesburg Turnpike, arrived about ten o'clock at the village of Langley. The line of pickets extended along the main road a short distance beyond the centre of the place and also along a crossroad, which, coming up from the south, connects with the turnpike just before we reach the village. Houses favourably situated at different points were occupied as headquarters of the various squads, or if such conveniences were not at hand, Brush huts supplied their place. At that time, Langley consisted of about a dozen houses and one small church, and had once been favoured with two regular taverns, whose sphere was now filled with two boarding houses of minor importance, one of which indicated its character to the public by the sign, Resta Ant. The dinner hour had arrived. The pickets unanimously conclude to set aside Uncle Sam's homely fare and take advantage of the enlarged facilities of entertainment afforded by the village. Accordingly, they adjourn to one of the boarding houses kept by a man of secession proclivities, whose principles, however, do not interfere, do not interfere with his untiring efforts to please. Such houses of refreshment, where a civilised meal could be obtained, 
situated as they were here and there along the picket line, added much to the enjoyment of these brief excursions from camp. Our duties were not very onerous, requiring the attention of each man two hours out of every six, and consisted in seeing that no one passed along the road, or appeared in the vicinity without proper authority. In good weather, the two days of picket duty, occurring once a fortnight, were quite agreeable, but if stormy, they afforded good material for the grumbling fraternity. In view of the approach of winter, and the probability of remaining in our present location for some time, it was thought best to make corresponding preparations. Pine logs with considerable labour were cut and brought in from the neighbouring forest, and soon Camp Tuttle began to present an air of comfort positively inviting. But after only a brief enjoyment of our improved quarters, and as if to remind us of the uncertainty always attending the soldier's life, orders came November 18th for Company H to strike tents, pack up and march over to Halls Hill, there to clear up a place for the regimental encampment. Arriving on the hill in a pelting rain, huge fires were built of the brush and stumps which covered the ground, and by evening our tents were up, and we were as comfortable as circumstances would allow. Hearing of several deserted encampments about a mile distant, on Miners and Upton's Hills, many parties went out the next morning to secure anything which might add to their convenience. A large barren plain was covered far and wide with the huts and debris of a portion of McClellan's army, which encamped here in the winter of 1862. The whole presented a very curious and suggestive sight. Meanwhile, orders came to strike tents and rejoin the regiment. It appeared that all the regiments in the vicinity were ordered to prepare for a rapid march, the army of the Potomac had but recently crossed the river. After the Battle of Antietam in pursuit of Lee, and the enemy were said to be threatening General Siegel, in command at Centerville. In view of this state of affairs, the reserve in the defences of Washington was called upon to be ready for any emergency. Returning to camp, 
we found the men earnestly canvassing the nature of the contemplated march. The orders, however, were countermanded in the evening, perhaps in consequences of a severe storm which continued for days. Chapter 2 To the Front The soldier who is untried in the fearful ordeal of war looks forward with a kind of adventurous excitement to the time when he shall cross swords with the enemy, and especially if his heart is bound up in the cause, and his motives lie deeper than mere love of adventure. He desires to stand at the post of duty, though it must be the deadly charge and at the cannon's mouth. At length the last day of November, a beautiful Sabbath came and with its marching orders. All attention was now concentrated upon the movement to the place. It was to take place next day at nine o'clock. The cooks were busy preparing rations for the march. The men were arranging their traps in the most portable form, and all looked forward with eager interest to the new scenes before us. At the appointed time on the following morning, the 27th with the other regiments in the brigade began the march for Washington leaving our comparatively commodious a tents standing. Henceforth shelter tents and for much of the time no tents at all were to be our covering our final destination was all a mystery, until as the days advanced, conjecture was enabled, with some probability to fix upon Fredericksburg. The march across Chain Bridge through Georgetown and Washington, and down the Potomac fifteen miles, consumed the first day and that night a tired set slept beneath their shelter tents, nestling in the woods by the roadside. By eight o'clock, December 2nd, we were again in motion, and before sundown, accomplished the appointed distance of twenty miles through a pleasant country divided into large and apparently well-cultivated plantations. Sambo's glittering ivory and staring eyes gleamed from many gateways, greeting us half-suspiciously. One young coloured boy concluded he had been beaten quite long enough by his master, and not liking the prospect before him if he remained, thought best to join the column 
and marched to freedom in anticipation of some such proceedings on the part of the coloured population. The planters of that region patrolled the roads on horseback, watching our ranks as we filed past to see if some luckless contraband were not harboured therein. The third day brought us within three miles of Port Tobacco, and without standing on ceremony, we encamped for the night on the grounds of a secessionist planter, and availed ourselves of his abundant store of hay and straw. December 4th we passed through the town, a very ordinary shabby-looking place, whose secession population hardly designed to glance at us, except from behind closed shutters. Thus far the weather had been delightful, but the fifth day of our march and the last on the Maryland side of the Potomac opened rather inauspiciously, and by the time we reached the river bank at Liverpool Point, a cold rainstorm had set in, in which we were obliged to stand a couple of hours awaiting our turn to be ferried across to the Aquia landing. At length the rain changed into driving snow, and when we arrived at the landing, the surrounding hills were white with the generous deposit. The village at Aquia Creek, after being evacuated sundry times, had risen again from the ashes of several burnings to become the base of supplies for Burnside's army before Fredericksburg. Busy carpenters were rearing storehouses, eventually to take their turn at conflagration, and the offing was full of vessels of every description loaded with stores to be transferred by rail to Falmouth. In the snow we disembarked, and after many delays reached our camping ground, on a hillside a mile or more up the railroad. It was now evening, and the prospect seemed anything but encouraging in view of the fact that the storm continued with even augmented fury. We pitched our shelter tents and made our beds in the snow, and built fires under difficulties which can hardly be exaggerated. To add to the discomfort of the case, our supplies were entirely exhausted, and although the wharves and storehouses at the landing fairly groaned with pork and hard tack, we could not obtain these articles, owing to inflexible red tape, 
and in part to the fact that the railroad was monopolized in carrying substance for the army at Falmouth. A very limited supply of sawdust ginger cakes constituted the universal bill of fare until the evening of the next day. That concludes the readings for tonight. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy and nearly ready for sleep. You're always welcome to listen to another episode though, if you're not quite ready yet. I look forward to bringing you a new episode very soon, and until then, good night.